0: Hey everybody, it's Rob Liefeld. Welcome to Rob's Observations. We're going to talk comics. We're going to talk some movies today, and we're going to talk for the first time in depth the man who who kind of started all this. Uh, maybe not all by himself, but he's a figurehead uh, without equal. Uh, no longer with us. Yes, I am talking about Stan the Man Lee, the legend, the icon, the man. Uh, Stan is uh, po- quite possibly uh, the most famous figurehead. Uh, of all time in, in, in the history of comic books, I was, uh, able to spend a great amount of time with him over 30 plus years, uh, much more so on the back end of his life, uh, than, than, than my, the early end of my career, which would take us back 30 years. But, uh, Stan was never, ever not completely present in the comic book industry, making his impact known, whether it was through the characters that, you know, bore his signature, um, Signature design in terms of voice and 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 co-creation with with two of the most fabulous, most talented creators, you know, in the whole world with with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Stan had a signature, uh, uh, you know, mark to everything that he did, and it is carried through to this day. Uh, you know, the end of his life, he was kind of given the the uh, the 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 due. I think that everyone expected. Uh, for him, sadly, he was like the last man standing. Jack uh, Kirby had long passed uh, long passed away uh, almost 30 years prior to that, and, uh, and Steve Ditko was a recluse up until the day he passed away, and Steve Ditko is a story for another day, but no less as an amazing talent as Jack Kirby, the two of them combined with Stan, gave us the modern day Marvel Universe, especially if you have if all you know, like my own kids who have told me repeatedly, if all you know of the Marvel Universe is the Marvel movies, and and don't kid yourself, there is so many of them out there. Again, my my son, uh, now twenty years old, was I, I took him and my my youngest son, at six years old, to see Iron Man on opening day. Uh, very excited. They they were more interested in Iron Man, by the way, because the year previously they had seen the the uh, Transformers movie, the the, the first um, uh, Michael Bay. Uh, uh Transformers movies that, that, that came out in the summer of 2007 and they they loved that movie and and they saw the trailers a few months later for Iron Man and saw you know mechanized warriors and now a mechanized warrior and, and it took seeing the movie to understand that, that that this time around it was a man who put on this mechanized suit that looked like it was straight out of Apple technology. And, and I really always believed that, man, those two cued each other up so well, Transformers to Iron Man, then more Transformers, then more Iron Man. But when my kids uh, saw Iron Man, uh, they had seen the Spider-Man movies that, you know, I think they were too young to really, you know, uh, uh, embrace them the way they would embrace the start of the Marvel U. And of course, that entire generation uh, took to those movies in, in a way that that no franchise has ever achieved. And and over you know the period of many years, a decade stretch. It seemed like uh, they they just uh, knocked it out of the park and and uh, won over a gajillion fans. And through that period was Stan's greatest ascension. As I said, uh, had Steve Ditko not been a recluse and Jack Kirby uh, been alive, they would have joined him and and, and in my mind, uh, no doubt become a a the most uh, known trio of creators of all space and time. But Stan, still alone, uh, he was the figurehead. He was on the masthead for years and years. Stanley Presents was in every comic that I bought when I was growing up. Fantastic Four, Spider-Man. Uh, we're going to discuss the period where Stan left because I, when I started buying comics, Stan had already um, migrated out to Hollywood to shepherd all of these uh, properties further down the road in terms of entertainment, making them movies, making them television, and, uh, I mean, Stan will be the first to tell you it, 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 again, 30 is, is kind of the the catch, the catch number here because it, it, it took 30 years for that stuff to get off the ground. Um, but if, if Stan doesn't come out when he does, you know, 74, 75, 76, uh, you know, relocate out here and, 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 and commit to it 24 seven. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we ever get what we get. It, it took every ounce and I, and, and, and I can tell you from being the hot it comic book creator of the 90s and going into all the different studios, Universal, Sony, Disney, Warner's, you, you name it, uh, I would come up against the idea of what a comic movie is. They thought comic, comic book movies were to them goofy. And, and look, you saw they did adaptations of The Phantom with Billy Zane. They did, uh, you know, The Shadow uh, with one of the Baldwin's, I believe, uh, you know, they, they they did all sorts of adaptations, and 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 they could never really give me the comic book movie that I wanted during the '90s. I wanted a James Cameron looking uh, comic book. That's those are the kind of comics. That's how I saw comics the way he directed Aliens and Terminator T2. Um, but 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 Hollywood thought there had to be a certain level of camp, and uh, and and really, it was the the X Men movies. What, the, the first X-Men movie that kind of... It could have gone camp, but it stayed the course. It, it took the material seriously. It had a more uh, than adequate budget. Uh, not not the biggest, you know, most expensive X-Men movie. They, they, you would see the kind of movie that we were hoping to get with the first one, which, you know, got us across the line. But X2 was when Fox believed and poured all that money in. And I think X, X2 X is quite uh, an amazing film and and does... I, I feel like Brian Singer was, you know into that James Cameron headspace. But, you know, you saw what happened with the Batman movies as they became increasingly more campy. Uh, whether it was, uh, you know, Burton or, or the later films, they just uh, couldn't resist the camp. And and, and and there was no real straightforward comic book film, again, until uh, X-Men. I can argue with you to your blue-in-the-face about Blade. Here's my thing with Blade. I, w- I had three movies Three comic book movies set up at New Line Cinema. They were making Blade. Blade was created as a horror film that just so happened to, to, to feature a Marvel vampire hunter. It was marketed as a horror film, sold as a horror film, and did a horror film business. It was not ever marketed as a superhero film. So when people go, oh, it started with Blade, I, I would call bullshit on that because I was there, and people of the time remember it, it did numbers of a horror film. It was marked as a horror film. It was a vampire movie. It's a vampire movie in, in a C- of vampire movies. I mean, or werewolf movies. I mean, Jack Nicholson was in Wolf. I'm pretty sure Wolf made roughly the same, if not more, than Blade or or those style of movies at the time. They were doing big budget remakes of of Dracula and Frankenstein and uh, and and you know Blade was an action vampire franchise, but it was not a comic book. I would call superhero the first comic book superhero movie was, in fact, X-Men. That is how the town saw it. That's why the reaction was so severe. It was like, oh my gosh, they took this really difficult concept into Marvel. I mean, uh, to to Hollywood, this particular Marvel concept was difficult. You know, mutants, there's a group, teams, you know, they like the solo heroes. They felt those stories uh, were were easily uh, digested. Look, the Hollywood executives and to this day, because I'm still dealing with it on a number of different projects, I can speak to this. So and, and what I'm speaking to is that it hasn't changed since Stan went out to Hollywood, is that they want the simplest route to the story. They want a simple route, a, the least complicated, the better. They think you, the audience, aren't very bright, and you need to be uh, digesting this on the simplest terms ever. So they always stick to very basic themes. So the X-Men was, what? Uh, you know, so complicated and multiple characters and who's the star? And it's an ensemble, but X-Men opened it up. Of course, we were followed by Sony's uh, Spider-Man movie, which was an absolute revelation. Again, you had to be there. If you were there in 2002, when when Spider-Man debuted, that was just phenomenal. Just, just nothing short of amazing. Um, really the reaction to that movie, I mean, uh, just, just an amazing effort by all around, um, and, and, and exploded at the box office. The technology had given us, I'm sure the Spider-Man Stan always dreamed of. It. it was the Spider-Man I always dreamed of for some of the, some of you who don't know shortly after Stan Lee. So we're going to get back to Stan Lee coming out to Hollywood. You know, the fruits of his earliest labors were the, uh, the Lou No Hulk show, which became very highly rated, and you have to believe that every kid who was buying comic books at the time uh, were adding to that number, but it did well as an uh, adventure of a week. Again, I've, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I didn't know at the time, I didn't know when I was nine and ten watching this, I did not know that uh, it was based off the model of the Fugitive uh, series that, that was way before my time. But guy on the run, going into a different town every week, meeting new people, solving new problems, helping families, helping the the, the woeful person or or David Banner himself getting the help. But always you you'd get at least two transformations of the Hulk, one early on, one later on. It usually involved throwing things and pushing and wrestling. For some reason, they didn't do a lot of slugfests and he very rarely ever had a super Um, powered nemesis to battle which was always kind of you always tuned in every friday night going i hope i hope we find somebody fight somebody with superpowers this time but that show was a giant hit on friday nights and it was a great great time slot and uh that was probably the first first spike the ball touchdown moment of stan's career he saw the hulk a character that he created with jack kirby blow up into a giant uh dramatic series with big ratings on a major network and it was a big show for cbs and uh so following that he clearly cbs and marvel had a thing for each other they did some uh they did some spider-man movies and and some i i remember them as spider-man movies like either two hours or 90 minutes maybe there was a brief period it was it was an hour weekly but it was very short-lived it did not get a, a long uh order of shows but uh it starred one of the kids, um, you know, from, from, uh, from the sound of music, all grown up. Uh, his name escapes me now. You guys will, I'm sure Google it and find out, but, uh, you know, handsome, great Peter Parker. But when he put on that Spider-Man cartoon, it was a step above a Kmart version. And the version of him crawling up walls is is hilarious. You even knew as a kid, like what's wrong is the string not pulling him up. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it, it was just, uh, it, 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 it wasn't the home run that Hulk was. It was great to see. I love seeing the TV Guide ads. They were generally always, always some sort of montage of, of photo or illustration. So it was cool knowing that Spider-Man was on TV. But it was, given how popular Spider-Man, it wasn't the same level of hit. But regardless, Stan is putting these things on the air. This is the Stan Lee effect. There's a Doctor Strange two-hour movie that is way better than, than, than you remember or better than people have made it out to be. It's creepy. It's eerie. Uh, great cast um, it that that came on in this same era again on CBS all of these things were on CBS. so Marvel definitely had a deal and and, and a successful relationship that saw these um, these brought to life and then there was the I think his name was Reb Brown was the name of the actor and they did a couple of Captain America movies and he had a motorcycle and he had a motorcycle helmet and you know it was weird and today's internet would crush it if that was alive if that was around. And activated back then, but I was—I just shrugged. And again, I was just happy to see that there was a Captain America, you know. So, so Stan got that live-action stuff. He got that activated, and it had a window of about three to four years, running basically the the, the length of the Hulk uh, on CBS. That success was the umbrella that Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Captain America movies, you know, dropped into. And and of course, in the, at the same time in the late '70s, there was a surge of cartoons. Uh, you had, um, the fantastic four come on, uh, NBC Saturday mornings. I never missed it. It was appointment television to me, even though the human torch wasn't in there. And we eventually heard through letters, pages and fanzines and magazines, you know, that the reason was, and I'm not sure this has ever been verified, but it, it's good enough for me. I, I believed it then. i I'm, I want to believe it now that they didn't want kids lighting themselves on fire. And, uh, now I'm going to tell you, I was so, I, I saw, I don't know who told me the trick, I mean, literally, I, I am a young kid. I am eight years old. When I learned that kerosene, uh, like like Gene Simmons, because Kiss was gigantic, the rock band Kiss, and Gene Simmons as the demon would spit fire from his mouth. And there was all this talk about how he did it, the kerosene packs and whatever. Well, my, my buddy showed me that if I sprayed kerosene all over my arm and lit it on fire, uh, that if I let it uh, burn for just a little while, my arm would indeed be on fire. I would hold, hold it out. So my, from my forearm to my, you know, edge of my fingers. So I would um, get the uh, lighter, the, the, you know, lighter fluid that, that we would barbecue with. Now here's the catch. I don't want to be irresponsible telling you this, but I was irresponsible at eight years old. And this is, I remember this because it was at our first house that I grew up in. We didn't move until the summer of 1977 when I'm nine years old. Um, so, and and I associate Star Wars with that move because that's when we moved into the new house and all the Star Wars toys and comics and experiences came in the new house. But in the old house, we had a sandbox. That's the only house that I ever had a sandbox at. And the couple times and I showed the neighbors, I got, I got in a lot of trouble when my mom actually looked out the window and saw that that this was happening. I I got in a lot of trouble, but my, my go-to, um, uh, uh, safety precaution for me and this is not advisable, okay? Let me say this again, not advisable. Uh, I would spray my arm, lather it in a nice thick coat of, of uh, you know, lighter fluid from about my forearm to my to my hand, and then I would light it on fire, but I would be standing in the center of my sandbox. And after I showed my buddy Matt across the street what I was doing, much to his whoa and semi-mortification, I would then drop into the sandbox and smother my arm in the sand, and no harm, no foul. I never got burned. Again, not, not advisable. I can't believe I am telling you how I would light my arm on fire, but I was a bit, this is a a pyro um, stage for me. When I also learned that you could hold a match up to the raid can, and it would spray fire, I would go and kill the cockroaches or the bugs with this, and then, um, yeah, I'm going to stop right there. I, I don't need to tell you all the stuff that I did with fire. Luckily, I never burned anything down. I was, uh, scared and contained enough in my actions, but my, uh, so, so that is why a child of the seventies believes that Human Torch was not in fact on the Fantastic Four cartoon because kids could maybe convincingly light themselves on fire and that would be very bad. So we got Herbie the robot instead. It was not quite the FF, but the thing I liked is we got Dr. Doom. We got the Inhumans. We got all sorts of great, um, you know, uh, uh, Fantastic Four villains, which were a tenant of the Stan Lee era. Again, Stan, in his uh, capacity as the co pilot with Jack Kirby and with Steve Ditko, gave us uh, Electro, Vulture, Craven, Kingpin. Maybe I think Kingpin may be John Romita Sr. So, uh, uh, Craven, Mysterio, Green Goblin, Doc Ock, okay, uh, Sandman, Doctor Doom, Galactus, Silver Surfer, Black Panther, and uh, Hace pot Pete the wizard I mean you guys this is impressive the mole man all those villains and those villains only made the Marvel Heroes cooler and uh, and and so seeing them all come to cartoon life at the same time so that's like 1978 same time again Hulk is happening on Friday nights and you're getting this rollout of CBS live action that is the first uh flag that that Stan plants and it's important because he gets he gets the ball rolling he gets you to 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 to, he's, you're introduced to the Marvel uh, universe via live action. And I never missed any of these, no matter how um, badly they've aged or how unimpressive they were at the time or how frustrating. Because the Hulk, I'm telling you, to a fan of the Hulk comic, to see the Hulk and Abomination battle and tear down an amusement park or then get taken deep into the bowels of a military facility and have to escape and battle Doc Samson or to go to the swamp and battle Man-Thing, you um, or or to go to these otherworldly planes that that uh, that Hulk visited, or the, by the same token to have the Fantastic Four, you know, tr- be trapped in a four-part, you know, uh, uh, diatribe, uh, 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 this this amazing saga from like X-Men, uh, Fantastic Four 196 to 200, 197 to 200, the the, the son of Latverian be trapped in Latverian, going toe to toe. All I'm trying to say is the comic books were always better than the live action or the cartoons. They were both fine, but they were never better than, in my opinion, and my fan, from my fan POV. Until now, uh, obviously, we get these movies with these giant budgets. Like we said, the, the Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi movies, they they caught up. They exceeded all expectations. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he's swinging between b- b- these buildings and, and the dioramic shots of how high he is up, up up in the city and the webs and the, oh, just, just fantastic. Stan was through the moon. That all starts in the '70s when he comes out here, and and that is uh, the beginning of Stan. What I believe his most important role is more important than amazing writer. And let me let me tell you, I am a fan of Stan's writing. I think his writing was strongest, without a doubt, on Spider Man. I think Spider Man. He will tell you he he related to him the most. I think he resembled him as a young man. I think Peter Parker was partially uh, uh, more more so. After Ditko left, more so um, modeled on 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 Stan himself, even though you could see pictures, and maybe Steve Ditko was, you know, um, modeling it on, on what would he believed on himself, but but the the the, the Spider Man once Ditko leaves and it's Stan and John Romita Senior is just uh, really personal, heartfelt, great uh great personal conflicts whether it's at home with aunt may stuff at school stuff at the job being a photographer can't pay his bills the 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 romance mary jane all that stuff that that seemed to be the stuff that stan excelled at and he always he had he just had a great ear for dialogue the guy had a great ear for dialogue great um in another world he was a great script script doctor um maybe screenplay writer but his his path Uh, was through comic books. And and that is how he reached us through his writing in the most powerful way It was through comics. The stuff with Kirby, I've been on record. I I will continue to say that the the stuff he did with Kirby, whether it was the Thor work or the Fantastic Four work, which which is more my taste, everyday taste. Like on a good weekend, I can curl up back as a kid with a bunch of Spider-Man adventures and totally dig those. Um, And again, they were so great because it was more personal. It was in the city. It was they weren't galactic. Spider-Man wasn't going to other worlds. He wasn't having interdimensional adventures like Thor and the Fantastic Four. And that, that was probably more my speed, but I love to curl up with a good bunch of Spider-Man books and see Peter navigating high school, um, part-time jobs, broken hearts, um, um, warped friendships, betrayals all the time battling some of the greatest, villains i've ever seen i'm on record i'll argue with you it it generally comes down to is it batman or is it spider-man i'm on the spider-man end of i think he has the best rogues gallery i've already you know mentioned it i'll do it again lizard doc ock uh mysterio craven uh you know um um green goblin uh i mean just right there Uh, those are those are five spike balls i mean some of the greatest villains ever And, and 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 the mastery of steve ditko's uh vision, his artistic work and the way that he would depict those characters are, are why I put them at the forefront and why I put them so, so, um, at the head of the class. And of course, you know, beyond uh, whether it was Kingpin or Hobgoblin or Venom or Carnage, Spider-Man has just an enormous history of great villains, great bad guys. Um, and, and, and so I think that the Spider-Man stuff always dug it, the, the Kirby stuff just, 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 to me, it felt more signature Jack Kirby, because of the big worlds, the gear, the tech, um, the ideas, the creatures. Again, with Fantasy Four, you're getting Annihilus, you're getting Doctor Doom, you're getting the Mole Man, you're getting Galactus, you're getting Black Panther, you're getting the humans, Maximus. I mean, uh, the Frightful Four, just just stunning amount of creativity, and Stan is there for all of it, and those we're not even getting to the Avengers and Loki and Thor and and all of those amazing adventures, you know, Ant-Man, Giant-Man, Wasp, uh, Hawkeye, just outstanding comic books, the X-Men, of course, the original X-Men, the concept was strong, even though I didn't love the characters, but, uh, you know, the the dream of Xavier continues to live today in every X-Men book. With every take that they attempt, they are still uh, doing somewhat of what Stan intended that they would do, which is this hated and feared by a world they've sworn to protect. That is when the X-Men is strongest, when they get away from that. In my opinion, the X-Men are not as resonant. They don't have the relativity. We all, along with Peter Parker, we relate to that geek. But Stan, I've I've informed you and and discussed with you how he impacted so greatly, you know, getting the characters, you know, on screen. And by 1980, you know, you've got Spider-Man or 1982, Spider-Man and his amazing friends on NBC in the morning with Firestar and Iceman and an all new array of really well done animated adventures. So, and, and, and people forget the thing had his own cartoon. They, they made a, the thing into a boy who could twist, with a twist of his ring, rocks would come upon him so he would transform into the thing. It was weird, but I dug it. I dug it. This is all Stan, um, you know, moving the Marvel vision to television and film, and 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 again, I give him 100% of the credit because that ambassador role is maybe the role that he is best at. As good of a writer as he was, and I've established those Spider Mans are perfect. If you like any Spider Man since Dan Slott, Brian Bendis, um, anyone who has done Jerry Conway, okay, Len Wee, Marv Wolfman, all these guys who took their crap, David Michelinie, Roger Stern, everybody who took their shot. At Spider-Man, they are doing a version of Stan's Spider-Man, they are doing a version of Steve Ditko and John Romita Sr.'s Spider-Man. Okay, let's let's make no doubt about that. That, that Stan's resonance. Uh, when it comes to the FF, I, I feel like there's a lot more, as I've said, Kirby and same with Thor, uh, somewhat Hulk, but uh Stan as great of a writer as he was, and, and I can't give him more praise, okay? So it the ambassador role was so important, but let's flip it. What happened when Stan left Marvel? What happened when Stan Lee leaves to come out to Hollywood? Well, that period is very difficult for Marvel Comics. Um, I've got my my Tomorrow's publication that covers some of these Bronze Age happenings, and I'm going to tell you right now. It says the period of Marvel at that time is very rarely discussed in great detail, but something went terribly wrong in Marvel in the early 70s. There were several factors involved in this misdirection. The Beyond the usual tired memes that Stan Lee was over the hill. Again, this is not me. I'm reading from a Tomorrow's publication uh, examining the Bronze Age and specifically this area. Uh, Beyond the usual tired memes that Stanley was over the hill or couldn't create anything without Jack Kirby's avalanche of creativity and Steve Ditko's plotting abilities. To understand the slump of 1970, one must examine 1968 and the first half of 1969. Pick up any Marvel title during those months and you'll find a stunning cover, usually symbolic, with few, if any, blurbs, Inside the covers, there is art by the greats, Kirby, Buscema, John Armida, Gene Colin, John Severin, Marie Severin, Jim Stranko, all operating at their peak. Even newcomers like Barry Smith and DC stalwarts Neil Adams and Gil Kane were joining in the fun at Marvel. The few stories that were not written at that time by Stan Lee and Roy Thomas are written by Archie Goodwin and Gary Friedrich. Stan had picked Roy. They call him Roy the boy because he looks so young. Roy Thomas to be his kind of successor, his creative and editorial successor. By January of 1970, the cover dated Marvel issues. Uh, Jim Steranko has left the building. Barry Smith has left the building. Doctor Strange, Nick Fury were canceled. Silver Surfer is a struggling comic book, soon to be canceled. Um, Stan is throwing in guest stars right and left, like the Human Torch and Spider-Man, to keep it afloat. Uh, Stan is handed over the Incredible Hulk, to Roy Thomas full time. Neil Adams uh, couldn't get the needle moved, even though it's career defining work on X-Men. And, uh, you know, Gil Kane and Roy Thomas uh, put their pencils down on Captain America and Archie Goodwin exits Iron Man. <clears throat> but Marvel still had a ton of talent. And, and, and yet the sales on the on the on the on the books had had slowed. And, and the creative ascendancy of the previous six years, again, I'm reading this to you uh you know had kind of had hit, had hit a hit a wall um Stan put an editorial edict forth. he put an editorial edict to everybody that no more multi-part stories, no more multi-issue sagas. They all had to be single issue stories and this had a profound effect on Marvel's publishing. Um, they say now, in retrospect that it was publisher Martin Goodman's idea. Uh, to, to, to push this path forward. Um, but uh, Marvel readers were complaining, you know, I guess, according to Goodman, he had letters from readers who said if, if, if they missed an issue, they felt like they had missed out and they, they were, you know, really disappointed and they couldn't follow the issues if the distribution of the comics. I lived this. There were issues of X-Men and issues of Fantastic Four when I was growing up that I would, completely realized came out and i missed them because i get x-men 107 and x-men 108 but the next comic i saw was x-men 110 it was a really long time and then i'm like oh my gosh how did i miss 109 and my friend had 109 and i read it and i'm like i need that so then i would drive all my my dad drive me all over orange county you know to different newsstands until i was like oh there it is out in the wild x-men 109 and and so i I relate to this but their knee-jerk attempt and they were, they were trying to do something that, that DC Comics was famous for, which was these single-issue stories, um, which left, of course, much less room for character development or a sense of continuity. But you get these, you know, one-issue adventures, and so, you know, th- there's nothing to miss out. If you miss that issue it, and it doesn't carry into the next issue, the soap opera element is gone. And I have long maintained, if you have listened to this podcast, the soap opera element is what I'm there for. That is why I show up. I show up for this saga. The X-Men saga that, that carried me through the summer of 1978 is when Magneto captures the X-Men, puts them underneath a volcano, holds them hostage. It has has immobilized them in these robotic chairs where they have to be fed manually. He's torturing them. Of course, Aurora slash Storm Inside her headgear, we reveal in a backstory that she is a classic pickpocket uh, that honed her sk- skills in on the streets of Cairo, that she is a great thief and and, and pickpocket. She has these different uh, needles and and um, prongs that she has inside her headdress, and she is able to eventually extend her neck down and reach those needles and use those to unlock the mechanisms that have constrained her and released the entire x-men team that ambushes magneto they have a knee i mean knockdown, knockdown, drag out fight by these issues okay by these issues they're outstanding this is x-men 111 x-men 112 x-men 113 okay and uh and eventually the the, the entire place comes down on them the, the 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 volcano what was holding it back is activated the X-Men are spit out under the other side of the volcano and they are in a, a, a territory, a region of Antarctica and it is revealed they are in the Savage Land which was introduced first by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, the, the home of Kazar Ke- and Zabu and we are on a new three-issue adventure and Sauron from the Neil Adams issues is back and there's a new kind of Uh, demigod that is rising up in the Savage Land named Garok and he possesses supernatural powers and he's manipulated by this woman named Selene who's like a sorceress and that extends for for three issues and that Savage Land was when I like was won over the Magneto and the Savage Land which covers about six issues total uh won me over and made it my favorite comic book of all space and time so that soap operatic element was crucial and it never stopped that, that that never stopped on the X-Men, it was soap opera, cliffhangers, one subplot, building into the major story plot, while another subplot was cooking, and then that would be the next major story plot, you know, following the main story closing, it was always rotating, it was very exciting, but nonetheless, in 1970, Marvel Comics, under Stan Lee's direction, does this edict, that, you know, there's not going to be any more sweeping sagas, and, uh, You know, Stan addresses this in the January 1970, uh, Stan Sobok, which ran in the back of all the Marvel comics. And it says, if our earth shattering new policy hasn't grabbed you by the time you read these words, excuse my terrible Stan, don't worry. We'll switch back to our old cataclysmically confusing continued story policy before you can say, no wonder they dumped old Stan. Okay. Fan backlash over this decision was immediate. It was reflected in the letters page. Uh, they, they 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 print letters from people saying, "I I'm sorry to hear your decision to cut down to single issue stories. I don't feel you can get the proper characterization and motivating and motivation into so few pages and still have the action I crave." Anyway, this was something that they did for the better part of a year, and uh, and also it, it didn't just stop at the at, at the at the no no you know continued issues and multi part stories. Uh, the policy was also that, the, that because to enable to contain the issues in any single comic book, they didn't want, uh, the, the, it limited the amount, of uh, the ability of the writer and the artist to cut loose creatively, which cut down on splash pages. And uh, increasingly, uh, you know, splash pages were removed from the, 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 the comics in favor of just multi-panel page after multi-panel page. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 80 from 1970... Uh, you know large panels often four to five a page uh were were much less hard much harder to come by than the previous years captions and editorial uh balloons uh and thought balloons uh were, were increased and uh you know th- th- this was just evident in every page of all the marvel comics as this new approach uh was 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 implemented and also stan wanted brand new characters he wanted he wanted a bunch of new characters introduced. Now, there is one completely lame-o, and now that I've said this, some writers are gonna go, oh, show you know, what lame-o means and, you know, bring this character to all new heights of relevance that he's never had. But during this period, you got the kangaroo, okay? The kangaroo. Again, you want new characters, your writers are gonna do what they can and create these new characters. Um, it was part of this new easy-come, easy-go policy. And, uh, you know, the kangaroo, might have been comfortable in the first year of Spider-Man as depicted by Steve Ditko or, you know, the early Daredevil, you know, uh, villains. But, but at that point in the, in the, in the advanced kind of, uh, fandom that Marvel had built up, um, the kangaroo kind of fell flat in, in, in terms of relevancy and in terms of, uh, you know, visual representation. And, uh, you know, so, so, it it, it, it it basically was this, this this period of cardboard cutout characters because the writers could not uh, depict these long-form stories where they built maybe a, a conflict with Galactus or a conflict with, with uh, Green Goblin or Doc Ock over an extended um, period of time. But um, at the end of that year, uh, they realized they'd made a great, terrible mistake. And, and and they needed more extended green goblin stories and less kangaroo one shots and you know it's uh you know <laughs> the the crypto man is a character in Thor around the same time you know that we're going through this uh the, the this, this kangaroo stuff and and the jester okay um the cobra mr Hyde so, some of these um you know uh uh villains were only given one one issue to shot to, to, to shine, okay, and uh, so so this was a really weird edict handed down, but that 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 Stan was supervising, you know, that 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 really kind of put Marvel through the ringer because they were trying to get out of a sales slump, and as we we covered, the talent was enormous. I mean, you've got some of these guys, the best, the, the, uh, Kirby, Starenko, the Severins, the Bicemas, Neil Adams, Barry Windsor Smith, um. But yeah, I, I think the result of that was then you got a guy named Jerry Conway that come in that came in because now Stan has left. Stan has gone off to Hollywood, and Jerry Conway comes on and gives you your multi part Gwen Stacy uh, storyline. Um, stuff like that was an uh, uh, an outpouring of the result of this year that they kind of locked everybody in and made them do these single character, single um, issue uh, adventures, and 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 suddenly you know. Uh, you got, I remember, uh, the, the story they, they reprinted as a treasury sized comic where Peter Parker takes a serum and it's the introduction of Morbius, the living vampire. And he gets six arms. Spider-Man becomes a human spider and he gets six arms and Peter Parker has six arms. And it's weird and it's creepy and it's drawn by Gil Kane. And it's amazing. The visuals are amazing and the lizards in it. And, um, you know, Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, like it was like they had been unleashed like after this this, this period of, Hey, one issue, one character self-contained, uh, they just, they just blew up. And so you got stuff like that. And then eventually you got the, the Gwen Stacy. I mean, new highs were achieved, but this is the time that Marvel was really feeling itself out. And after Stan left, the idea was that they would try anything. Brother Voodoo, Luke Cage, Power Man. Um, you know, you had Omega, the unknown, you, you, you had uh, Moonstone or I'm sorry, Bloodstone. Um, moonstone's another character but yeah, th- th- they started to expand and be more diverse they did monster books werewolf by night frankenstein tomb of dracula you know to me that kind of sea level stuff in the 70s is-, is my absolute favorite stuff there's great great amazing work by gene colin by mike Plug. i mean great monster artists great dramatic artists i thought i thought gene colin on tomb of dracula was the best bit ever much better than anything superhero that he ever did. Captain America, Daredevil. Um, that stuff is great. But Tomb of Dracula was like next level. And, and, and this is while now Stan has left. that the, the failure of the one-year contained story finds um, Stan basically leaving behind Marvel. And he is essentially, you know, just, uh, just Stan Lee uh, publisher in, in absentia. He's still the voice. And he's the guy on the college campuses. He's doing the tours. He's going all around, uh, speaking to the student bodies, telling them stories of Marvel heroes and how Marvel heroes deal with race and, 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 and with prejudice. And because they themselves in their own universe have prejudice put upon them. And Stan was the best salesman ever. If you've ever seen Stan, especially in his peak around that 70s, 80s period, and I caught him twice at conventions. He was fantastic. He knew exactly how to connect with the crowd, exactly that, that turn of a phrase and especially that voice, okay? Well, by the time that me and my peers break in, again, all, all my guys, Todd, McFarland, Jim Lee, Marshall Westry, Wills Pratasio, Eric Larson, we grew up on these Hulk TV shows, these cartoons in 1978 on on NBC, okay? And and we have been influenced by the now the the furthering of these stories uh, by, by, by Stan on television, on film. And we are just addicted to this stuff. This is fantastic. And we are wanting to get into comic books. Well, by the time we get into comic books, Stan is, uh, Stan really is, uh, just full-time Hollywood has very little to do. I, I never encountered a Stan Lee decision because there wasn't a Stan Lee decision to encounter. Uh, I believe a guy named Mike Hobson along with, uh, Jim Shooter, were the ones that were really, uh, you know, um, guiding Marvel publishing at that time. The, the 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 last significant decision that I remember Stan rendering was, and I've shared it with you. There's a Star Wars podcast uh, uh, about licenses, and, and Star Wars. It's one of my earliest podcasts. I cover it in depth. I read Stan's forward his his commentary that he admits he did not believe Star Wars would be uh, a comic book that made any sense for Marvel to do. Now Marvel. I said they were throwing everything against the wall. You know, the 70s is when they're trying to figure it out. You see they went to this one character, one storyline edict. Then, as I said, they went to all sorts of diversity, diversification, martial arts comics, you had the 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 you had Iron Fist, Master of Kung Fu, you had Black Panther giving his spotlight, Black Goliath, Omega the Unknown, Brother Voodoo. Uh, it was it's an exciting time. It's some of my favorite comics, not just cause I was alive then. I still seek that stuff out and look at it today and study it. And and I love how wide and broad the Marvel universe became. And each of the books reflected that. Fantastic four, you know, had more female representation. Uh, had more, you know, Luke Cage power and becomes a member of the Fantastic Four for a period of time. This is really exciting times. Avengers gets it. Avengers, you know, more female representation. I mean, they get Hellcat, they get Moondragon to, to go alongside Wasp and Scarlet Witch. You get a female version of Ultron. So it's, this is an exciting time for Marvel Comics, but but they weren't selling. They weren't doing well. And in fact, they were bleeding red ink and Jim Shooter in the Star Wars forward of the very first Marvel Omnibus put out in 2015, as well as the Stan Lee forward to the original 1977 collections. They they, they cover how um, they had no idea Star Wars would be the vehicle that saved them. And Stan is on record as saying he wasn't convinced that they should be in that business at all. More space pirates and, and, and space operas, as he called it. He just didn't see the appeal. And Roy Thomas is the one that threw himself off you know, on the sword and said, or on the lightsaber in this instance, and impaled himself in the interest of, please let us do this. I've seen the material. I've met with the marketing people. I've met with George Lucas. Let me go through with this. That book saves Marvel, gives them millions and millions and millions of dollars in profits and stabilizes the publishing division and helps them find the new course. As we've we've discovered, as the direct market opens up, comic stores come into being. And, and Star Wars is that bridge it finances them for years and Bob Layton in another one of these two uh publications is on record uh, in his interview as saying oh man Star Wars saved Marvel and again this is just you know every, every everybody sometimes every every great man uh, has a bad decision that they regret and Stan is open that that he was he looks back now and can't believe he was hesitant and reluctant to do Star Wars and actually turned it down. Uh, I mean, literally, Roy Thomas had to appeal to Stan to go forward with it. Because as Bob Layton said, oh, we we were there. Marvel was in a lot of trouble. I just read this last night. I can paraphrase this. this. He said, you got to realize when Star Wars hit, people wanted Star Wars stuff and there was nothing. The only thing available was the comic book. If you wanted to expand. And I was sitting there telling my wife the other night, just because as a young kid, that Star Wars comic book fed a desire. The stories beyond the original film. The original, you know, they started with the Han and, and Chewie storyline, and then it went to a Luke Skywalker water world. Han with space pirates. Um, they introduced they introduced a a, a gambling uh, uh, space station called the Wheel. There were all new, um, you know, Imperial bad guys introduced. They returned to Tatooine with an adventure, you know, that, in, that where they encountered more sand people and Jawas. I mean. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if all this stuff ends up in the expanded uh, Disney Plus Star Wars stuff like The Mandalorian that we're seeing now because it was so rich and the kids like Dave Filoni and Jon Favreau who are my age who talk openly about being discussed about this stuff. We ate this stuff up and Bob Layton's right. There was, there was no Star Wars toys for a year. Remember, they missed that Christmas. They had to get those stuff in production. You got a box with a promise that you'd get six figures if you bought the box in advance from Sears or May Company or one of the department stores like we did. And those toys didn't arrive till March or April, but it was I mean Star Wars was still playing. But that early fever in, in Memorial Day on was was primarily fed by the comic books. and Marvel would repackage those comic books in three packs, in department stores. There was dedicated spinner racks just to Star Wars. So again, this is in the post Stan. Stan does this, leaves, goes to Hollywood, brings us Hulk, Spider-Man, Captain America all these great TV shows, whether if you were there, they were great seeing Captain America on TV. Even if he was wearing a motorcycle helmet and even if he was, you know, doing wheelies on a, on a red, white, and blue uh flag, you know, designed motorcycle. It was cool. You, you, you loved it and you talked about it with your friends the next day. The seventies were awesome. I'm going to tell you right now, they were awesome. Okay. Well, so then Stan really removes himself completely, not because of star Wars. It was just time to give more time to Hollywood and, and he's having great success. And again, the 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 you can mark like the, the Hulk seventy seven and these other uh, uh, CBS movies, and then the 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 cartoon in nineteen seventy eight, the Fantastic Four cartoon, and then in the early eighties you got you got you know Spider Man and his amazing friends, and then there's a little gap before everything blows up and and completely goes Marvel's way in the nineties with the X Men animated series and the Spider Man animated series and the New Fantastic Four anim- animated series and Iron Man and all of that stuff, and 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 again that's all because of Stan. And, and at that point, Stan is not as prominent. And I'm going to tell you, some of you guys have seen these videos that myself and Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, we all did. They're called the uh, Staber Home Videos by a guy named Paul Staber. Paul flew out, met with us. He was a businessman from Pittsburgh. He told us all the different companies he had. Really great guy. Very, very uh, distinct look and voice. Uh, he he, he uh, said, I want to do a video celebrating you guys. And and I have talked to Stan Um and frankly, he even said, like, Stan needed the work. And what I'm trying to say here is, this was kind of a dry period for Stan. The reason Stan, Stan Lee presents the Staber Home videos, we are, uh, he is the host that is spotlighting us. And it was such a pleasure to do those. We we shot them all over a two-day period uh, on a soundstage uh, in, in the valley in Southern California. And so we spent an inordinate amount of time with Stan. I had been on a few panels with him. Where he was always cordial and and, and graceful and sweet and uh, you know always charismatic, never not the most charismatic guy in the room. But at this point, uh, Stan was, I, I, Stan was flustered in 1991. That the X Men animated series hadn't happened yet, and there was kind of a failure to get things going. And what was happening was the Batman movie from 1989 on was blowing up, and and it is never more. Prominent, you can see it on display when, uh, when, when, as part of these Staber comic book greats videos that myself and Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and Wilson did. Uh, Bob Kane, the Batman, you know, creator, is is uh, on one of them, and and uh, he is trying to flex all over Stan, and it's and we were watching from the monitors in the back, and Todd and I had to do everything in our power not to break out laughing and ruin the sound because. The way that Bob Kane talks is like Snagglepuss. And if you don't know who Snagglepuss is, Google Snagglepuss. He's a very uh, celebrated character from the 60s and 70s cartoon character. He's a cat. And he, Snagglepuss. And he talks like this. And and Bob Kane happens to talk just like Snagglepuss. And he'd say, don't be jealous, Stan. I know you're jealous that Batman is such a success. And you know you wish you created Batman, Stan. But don't be jealous, and uh, he's flexing on Stan, who keeps his composure, maybe he has a couple one-liners and and a little bit of a back and forth, but but Bob is full on like, I'm I'm more special than you, is the entire vibe, maybe exactly what he says, but the the don't be jealous, Stan. Don't be jealous of Batman. You know, you know, you, you know you wish you created him. That is on tape. It was filmed, we saw it uh uh stan is very gracious because you know stan's like come on i i'm the godfather the, the co-author of all these amazing you know marvel properties but but batman 89 i mean come on you had prince do an entire soundtrack i mean this was a cultural you know just complete renaissance but the point being is stan had become uh kind of just uh a, 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 a station above a shill, but he was not the Stan Lee of the 60s, 70s, and he wasn't the Stan Lee of what would be the 2000s, okay? He's just kind of waiting it out. And of course, when everything starts to break with the, with the cartoons, and then you've got the movies, Stan is starting to get his spotlight again. And now I'm seeing Stan all over the place. And towards the end of the 90s, even like, you know, they're trying to do special things with him. DC Comics does an agreement with Stan uh, I don't even want to talk about Stanley Media. I'm aware of it. It's such a garbled mess. I, I don't know how they got a control of his name. I think he was in and out of that very fast. It involved the Clintons. It's weird. Google Stanley Media. It was all sorts of, it's a shame that, that he was associated with this. I went up to Stan's offices during this time, during the time that he had a very small, very cool, but I mean like literally the, the hallway for, for, I'm not a big guy, but the hallway was slight for me. And he had these cool, very tiny, tiny, tiny offices. My studio that I'm coming to you right now is is, is two and a half size of the office that Stan had. It was very expensive, Beverly Hills real estate, so that was very, you know, obviously very expensive real estate, but it was very tiny. There was a receptionist, and then Stan, and then a guy with Stan, and they all were in like one extended office. And I was talking to Stan about jamming on some stuff. My agents had put me together with him about talking about doing some new, new material. And he was very excited that DC Comics was doing this Stan Lee, you know, uh, what if Stan Lee created Superman and Wonder Woman and what would that look like? And the failure of that, it was, it was a fun, you know, uh, exercise in marketing, but the designs were all not very good. From my passive, you know, fan eye, I interacted with very few of them. It was a great idea. I wish it would have been executed better. You'd remember those b- books more if you're hearing about them for the first time. Check into them. There's a couple good ones. John Buscema does one. He does the Superman one. So, I mean, there's there's definitely some artistic flexes in there. But now, not to, you know, pop your bubble, but I've met all of the different ghostwriters who are like, hey, I wrote that, I wrote that. Stan wasn't writing full-time. They were using him as a figurehead, and that's what Stan was kind of... There was this period where it was more comfortable to use Stan as a figurehead, because he was very old. And like I said, with the Bob Kane thing, on the video... You got two octogenarians. You got two geriatrics going at it. It's 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 kind of fun to watch, also slightly uncomfortable. But Stan held his ground. Bob Kane is no longer with us. Yes, Batman is a terrific, amazing, fantastic uh, 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 creation. You know, all hats off to you, Mr. Kane. Um, Stan, absolutely, as we know, uh, if you are alive at the time of this podcast, Stan uh, w- w- was certainly the tortoise to Bob Kane's hair. Because the Marvel Universe, the MCU, uh, wins out in the most spectacular way. And and so, where I start spending the most extended period of time with Stan is in the 2000s. Because we're traveling together a lot. Um, We are traveling together. uh, And when I mean traveling together, so when you are going to catch a flight to Boston, which is a five and a half, six hour, depending on the weather, flight, and you are seated next to Stan uh, on the flight, uh, you know, that is six hours both ways, plus... Uh, you're going to Rhode Island from Boston. That's the final destination. You fly into Boston, then you have a 90-minute bus ride or cab ride. Not not a cab. I mean, in the cab of a giant van or a bus, not a taxi. But you, you're, you're positioned in the comfy chairs in the back with Stan. Suddenly now, the trip is, you know, eight and a half hours each way. So you've almost spent an entire waking day with Stan. And this happens multiple times, whether it's all the East Coast jaunts. And I did Boston. I did Florida. I did New York. Um, time and again, uh, you know, I did Toronto so many times I am with Stan being picked up, being, um, being sh- sharing space with him, sitting next to him. Uh, a couple times I gave up my seat, uh, switched so that he could sit next to his manager so that he had somebody more comfortable with him. But oftentimes I would be the aisle right across from him or sometimes he would be yeah, seated next to me. There's a, there's a, a, a great story that I tell that on the way to, uh, to, uh, Boston, Uh, they were about to close the hatch and, uh, you know, neither he or his manager had made it on the, on the, on the plane yet. And we are sitting there and I'm sitting in the, in the, uh, in the second row, the the second row of, of, of the, of the cabin. And, uh, and, and come on, of course, Stan is, is, is flying first class. Okay. So, uh, suddenly Stan appears in that frail, you know, Stanley, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, his, his, his khaki pants and his members only jacket. Okay. And he's very thin. And this is probably, this is probably six years ago. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, we're going to Cincinnati actually, not Boston, Cincinnati. And suddenly he, he comes through the the portal. Like, like, you know, I, I can't see the door. I'm, I'm in the second row. I'm just looking straight ahead. I, I see the, the, the stewardess, the flight attendant, and then boom, Stan Lee skids through like Kramer coming into Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld. Okay. And he's like, oh, and then he looks and, 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 and he sees, uh, he sees the front row, the two open seats. That's, that's all there is left. Everyone else is seated, including a couple of the big Hollywood actors that are going to this thing. And, uh, and Stan looks at the seat and goes, oh, not the bulkhead, not the fucking bulkhead. I, I hate, the fucking bulkhead, and he looks over at the stewardess like what? And I am giving you word for word how he said this. And look, man, here's the deal: Stan is in his eighties, okay? And and my mom is in her eighties. And at this period, from the two thousands on, I look at Stan as my, as as a grandparent. As as I see him more as a sweet old man than I've ever seen him as anything ever before. Because my mom is now a an, an, an senior citizen. It obviously, has been for a while, but. I couldn't even imagine being eighty and as spry and as and as and as active as Stan. But Stan just darted in, like I said, like Kramer skids, got his tennis shoes, his khakis, his members only, his glasses, and he goes, "Not the fucking bulkhead!" Oh, and I stood up. Stan, Stan, I'll switch with you. You can have my seat. And Stan, with that spryness, like a jackrabbit, like nightcrawler, suddenly pops in front of me. He is on his knees, on the front row seat the bulkhead looking over the 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 top of the chair his hands on it literally like a rabbit and he goes you would do that for me and I'm like yeah and he says it again you would do that for me I said Stan come on let's do it let's switch okay and he slides in and this other um talent was not happy Because I think he knew, uh uh-oh, if there is a manager coming, I'll I'll be asked to leave too. Nobody likes the bulkhead, right? But uh, now we're whining. First class is awesome, so let's not complain. I'm not going to complain. So I pick up my stuff, I take my seat in the bulkhead, and then Stan like puts his face in between the space of the of the the, the first row chairs and goes, "Thank you, Rob." And I'm like, "Stan, I love you, man." And so uh, the great thing is I got to hear Stan watch um, a couple of the Marvel films on on the way home, and. and and he was watching Winter Soldier, as a matter of fact. Yeah, this is 2015, and because he's also gonna watch, <laughs> he's gonna watch Civil War, because um, his manager eventually makes it through before they close the the, the, the gate. The, the portfolio had been missing or whatever, and he comes in and he plops down next to him, and and uh, and I'm listening when they're feeding Stan, and Stan's like, he didn't he he doesn't want to eat that sandwich. It has mayo on it. I don't like the mayo, and I don't like mayo either. So I totally related, but. So I was, you know, he was, he was not having a good time with his meal and the the sauce and the mayo. And then they're like, we can scrape it off. Oh, don't bother. But, uh, so then I hear him go, who is winter soldier? And, and I'm never going to forget that ever in my life. I guffawed because it was so loud. The whole cabin is black. You know, when you're just lit by the, the, the devices nowadays, wherever you are in the, on the cabin, when they put the lights out who is winter soldier? And his manager says, that's Bucky. That's Bucky Stan. That's Bucky. That's Bucky. Now, of course, Stan didn't create Bucky. That's Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, but they published Captain America all the time. He was publisher and editor in chief. And so, uh, you know, he goes, are they going to be friends? That's Bucky. So that just had me howling. Okay. So then, uh, later on in the flight, he's watching Civil War, which had come out, you know, summer of, of 2015. And this is the fall of 2015. And Stan says, uh, Stan says, why are Iron Man and Captain America mad at each other? And I, I just, I'm telling you, it was like, there was a five-year-old behind me. Cause I, obviously I have three kids by this time. I've raised them all past the age of five. I know what five feels like and, uh, I just was cracking up. And of course they said, no, they're going to, they're going to be friends, Stan. Oh, I hope so. And then when we were off of the plane, I said, Stan, I was with you at, at, at the civil war premiere. And let me tell you something. Let me sidebar. Um, knowing Stan and going to all those premieres with him from like 2008 to, to the, you know, shortly before his passing doing all that stuff. You got to see how electric that made, that, that was for Stan. That was very special he felt loved. He loved feeling the love. He, uh, he truly, I, I, I truly believe it was part of what kept him going. And when that interaction was no longer available to him because his health had dwindled, it did sap him. I, I really believe there's that Lady Gaga song, I Live for the Applause. And part of it is Stan lived for the applause. He loved, he loved the attention. He loved the love that was shown him. I would arrive at some of these movies and, and just stand back and wait for Stan to arrive. And when he pulled up and got out of that chair, roar! I mean, the people went crazy for him every single time. Um, every time he had become, you know, the face of the Marvel Universe. And for that, and this is why I love it so much, he worked his ass off. He went to Cincinnati and Boston and Texas. And he went to China. He went to Japan. He went to all these different places, okay? He, 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 he did every California show. He did New York. He did, you know, he he did the Midwest. Uh, be, and, and by doing it and by hustling as hard as he did, he put a face to comic books. And now people know that there isn't just an easy button. Because sometimes these companies want to believe that there's just a broom in the back that they hit the easy button, boom, and a character pops out. And no, we are creators. And Stan is a creator. He's a comic creator. Um, And so it's great that he put a face to creators and, and made it cool to associate a a human being, a fl- you know, flesh and blood creates this stuff. I, I long believe that Stan did um, achieve what Walt Disney could not because Walt Disney passed, you know, before the Disney empire took complete control of our lives. But had Walt Disney lived, again, just like Jack Kirby, you would be splitting uh, that attention. And, and And Stan just had the good fortune of living a really long and rich life. And, and so we're getting off the airplane. And I said, Stan, I saw you. I was at Civil War with you. You, you know, I I heard you talking about Captain Iron Man. He goes, oh, I fall asleep with those things. I'm I'm asleep the minute the movie starts. And that was funny because the next time I did look over, I think it was Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I did see old Stanny. He, 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 he loved the carpet. He loved, you know, meeting everybody. And then he would just completely collapse. The last time I saw Stan... Was at the Captain Marvel premiere, and he was in his, um, he was in the wheelchair. Uh, they they whisked him through. He did, he only did the red carpet, stood up, took a few pictures, got in the wheelchair, and was zipped away. And uh, you know, the end of Stan's life, the last two months were very rich for him, because the people who really truly loved him and cared about him had finally found their way to him. There was a terrible managerial turnover after managerial turnover that had occurred that I believe compromised him greatly. That is my personal belief. It compromised him terribly. Um, He should have never gone out to any shows once his wife passed because she was the true love of his life. Joni was the love of his life. He lived for the applause, yes, but he lived for the applause to come back and tell Joni all about it. She was the conduit. She was the connection. And when that was taken from him, he lost so much of his will. I I saw, again, from, from about 2014, on was the extended trips with Stan, Cincinnati, New York, Boston, Rhode Island, uh, Texas, the, the New York, the, 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 LA shows that, that, that bore his name. The LA comic-con put the Stan Lee name in the title and they became even bigger. And Stan was even more accessible. And he was so sweet to all my kids and to my wife and my family and my nephews. And so, uh, again, I just saw him as the sweetest, sweetest man. And when he was leaving Cincinnati, he kept, he, 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 he always drive by in his little scooter and he stopped by my booth and they said, Stan, I wanted to say hi to you. And he goes, I love you. And I said, I love you. And he goes, of course you do because you have good taste. And he'd give me a hug and he'd get on that scooter and he would zip around. The Stan Lee scooter was one of my favorite things. To, I wish I had more video of him scootering around the clips that I do have are from him, you know, from the back, him scooting away. I, I, I need them, you know, so that you could actually see it's him coming at you on the scooter. Um, he had a definitely, he had, he had a really fun time in the end of his life. Like I said, my buddy John, John Buller Jack, took excellent care of him. Once he found his way to him and through the red tape and all the different people who were exchanging him, he was settled. He was in a good place. And John called me up one day to come and sit with him because he said, Stan's lonely and he's asking for you. And he's like, what about my friend Rob? And uh, so I hightailed it up there. And I was a- adamant that I would not do anything to upset Stan. So I just, I remember the whole tribe there. I go, I don't want to, you know, do anything that would upset him because he's so old and he's so been so compromised. His health is, is failing. But when I got there, he looked great. I would never have put a picture of me in stand-up had he looked frail or compromised. He looked so robust and healthy. And I was so excited. I knew exactly what I was going to say, and when I got there, I said, Stan, I just want to say thank you, thanks to you, I just want to thank you, the child in me, the kid, for the Hulk TV show, for the cartoons, it it wasn't just the comics, you had the fortitude and the vision to come all the way out to California, to hunt Hollywood, make sure that your creations got the right exposure, and get them in front of kids like me, and they transformed my life, And, and whether it was Lou Ferrigno, or Red Brown, or whoever was playing, I think it was Hammond. The Spider-Man guy's name is Hammond. He was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too, as the director. Great, great turn. Uh, like, almost deserved a, a special award just for how great he was in that trailer telling Rick Dalton how he was going to zhuzh him up as kind of a hip cowboy. But anyway, the Spider-Man, the Captain America, the Hulk, the Doctor Strange, all the cartoons. And I think, I just want to thank him. If, if, if I'm going to spend time with Stan, I just want to thank him. And he said, oh, that means so much to me, Rob." And then he launched into his battle with the libraries, and there was a period. And he told me again, and this was a bit of a blind spot, but the uh, the, in 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 my memory at the time, but I had them all. I would steal them. So you've learned that I stole things, and I lit my arm on fire in this episode. I'm 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 really my track record is awesome. Um, The library carried there was Origins of Marvel Comics, Sons of Origins, Bring On the Bad Guys. Uh, The superhero woman of Marvel Comics, they had all these different trade paperbacks that they did with this company that reprinted all the great Marvel stories of the Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko and John Romita Sr. era. And he had such a battle with the libraries to carry those because they didn't think they were true literature. I'm not selling Shakespeare, lady, he said. And he said he had to even like go speak in front of the board of librarians so that they would um, carry them in the section that Marvel wanted so that they would reach the most kids. So Stan Lee was a special guy. Uh, he, that, that role that he had as ambassador that you experienced him as and I experienced him as was one of the best uh, functions that he ever served us as a comic community in getting out there and showing his flesh and blood that you could pinch him and go, that's the guy that all these ideas came from. And again, it's, it's he didn't keep anybody down. Jack was long gone. Steve Ditko is a famous recluse who wouldn't meet with the public. And uh, Stan got out there. He sold comic books to the public. He sold himself and creators to the public and uh, and then was able to drink it all in in the last two decades of his life as this stuff got the $200 million budgets that they deserved. And he dined out all the way till uh, he was gently looking out over the pool and over the mountains and the hills uh, in the Hollywood Hills where he had a beautiful, beautiful home. And guys like John Jack took splendid, excellent care of him. And there was all these fantastic bodyguards who were key in getting Stan to the safe hands of the people who loved him because they were hired by other managers who then saw the abuse that they were heaping on Stan and reported those managers and got them remu- removed, and then installed again people like John, who took great care of me. It, it, the last two months, I can tell you, Stan was settled. He was happy. He was he was just completely at peace. That day we talked for a little over an hour. We were looking over his beautiful pool and the beautiful Hollywood Hills, and 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 Stan would say, "I think of Joni. I think of Joni of often," and it was so sweet. He was madly in love, uh, even well, well past a year after his wife passed, but you could tell it, 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 you know, it had taken a giant chunk out of him. The fun was gone. The love was gone. The love of his life was gone. And he had had such a rich experience. And if you stood in line in Cincinnati or Boston or New York or LA, you saw how spry he was. He saw how active he was and those signatures and those photos. Um, I mean, he became one of the biggest icons ever. I'll close this by telling you the Fox uh, panel that they previewed the Deadpool movie and I do want to tell you that in the first week of January we are starting a five-part series called The Making of Deadpool yes I've been holding that in my back pocket in my hip pocket the 30th anniversary of Deadpool is almost here we are weeks from it and I'm going to celebrate in style and I'm going to bring you a very detailed account of 30 years of Deadpool especially from my perspective as the man who brought you Deadpool created Deadpool who gave you Mr. Wade Wilson Merck with the mouth and, uh, and I'm so excited to share that with you. But at the Fox 2015 presentation where they rolled out the Deadpool trailer that had Hall H rise up and shake the room, I was there. I was there when they revealed the Avengers in 2011 and the Avengers took stage. R- Jeremy Renner, Hemsworth, uh, D- D- Downey Jr. called them all out one by one, Sam Jackson, Scarlett Johansson. That was the biggest moment until Deadpool. That trailer, C- you look on the face of Chris Hardwick, look on Ryan Reynolds' face. Everyone was like, it- they were shocked. The the, the, the the visceral reaction to Deadpool. Stan was there. Stan was brought on stage at the end and took a group photo with uh, um, Jennifer Lawrence, Ryan Reynolds, Hugh Jackman, okay? Um, you know, uh, all of the big names in the mutant films. All of, of the giant superhero Fox films. And they gathered around Stan as their kind of emeritus, you know, president, uh, uh, you know, engineer creator uh not dead not deadpool but but you know not wolverine but but the idea the x-men and to see jennifer lawrence and hugh jackman fawn over stan was one of the sweetest moments and stan was so you know enjoying it and and loving it as, as you would as i would but it was so fun to see this world that was um that he created so many years ago and they were drinking him in the biggest biggest stars in hollywood um are are just uh uh, uh, Channing Tatum was on stage because because they announced Gambit, okay, a movie that we're never going to see. But again, Chan- and it was just all these giant, big, mega Hollywood names and talents fawning over Stan. I mean, like I said, it it he became the biggest star in the world, and and for that we should all be grateful. He if he hid away and was reclusive, uh, it would never have happened. But he got out there, and he was an ambassador still to the day he died, and for that. I am so thankful to have known and shared time with Stan. I love that I did videos with Stan, many videos with Stan. Check them out; they're all out there. I did three or four, some with by myself, some with Todd, some with Jim Lee. Great stuff. But Stanley gave us an entire empire, uh, the Marvel empire that really runs the world as we know it now, as, as far as pop culture. And uh, what a special man. Loved having this time to talk with you about him. Get ready for that making of Deadpool series in July in, in January January twenty one. We're going to start at the first the first episode in January. We're going to launch right into it. It's it's going to be uh, the, just a, a fantastic series. Uh, I I would love for you to spread the word. Keep telling your friends about observations. All hail Stan Lee. Um, I wouldn't have a job without Stan. Thank you, Stan. Thank you for listening to this show on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Check me out. I'm on Facebook. I'm online. Say hi. Let's talk. Uh, keep your interactions coming. I love, love visiting with you guys. Love hearing what you guys have to say. Um, thank you for listening. As always, please take care of yourself. Uh, have a great holiday season. Be safe, and we will talk again real soon. Thank you.